implications of the Migration Policy Institute throughout its first two decades. And as the world pulls through COVID-19 pandemic, pull through it, we are finding enormous shifts in patterns of mobility, government policies, international cooperation that will have long-lasting impacts. I'm Andrew Seeley, I'm the president of the Migration Policy Institute, and it is my honor to welcome you to today's conference, which is a hybrid event. The first time we have really tried to do this, we have a small uh, distinguished audience here at our MPI offices in Washington, D.C., and a much, much larger virtual audience around the world. Welcome both to those here in the room and welcome to those who are with us virtually today as well. Uh, most of the speakers are here in person. Um, there's one exception, but the audience is very much a hybrid. We are here, people there, and as we get into questions and answers, you will see we will try and take questions from those in the room as well as questions from those who are on the video. Today's conference commemorates the two founders of MPI, Dimitri Papadimitriou and Kathleen Newlin, who started MPI 20 years ago. Both remain actively engaged on migration issues around the world and remain active with MPI. But today is an opportunity to celebrate their leadership, the organization they created, and most importantly, some of the issues which they and we at MPI have long considered centrally important in thinking about human mobility around the world. I will turn the program over in a moment to my colleague, Essie Werke. Senior Analyst in the Human Services Initiative at MPI, who will moderate the first panel, which is inspired by Kathleen Newland's longstanding work on humanitarian protection around the world. Kathleen was co-founder and director of MPI and continues to be a senior fellow here whose work spans issues of migration governance and international protection. She has played a particularly important role in building the intellectual architecture for the international protection regime we have today and for constantly pushing the conversation in new directions so that we continue to perfect and transform this architecture. Indeed, MPI continues to work on these issues actively with Kathleen's guidance. And somewhere in this room is Susan Prasky, one of my colleagues who leads some of our efforts. Right now, one of our big projects on, uh, on international humanitarian protection in the future. Kathleen will be joined from Geneva by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, who has played such a vital role in leading UNHCR as the 11th UN High Commissioner. And we really appreciate him taking time to join us, and we're very much looking forward to his remarks today. And she's also joined by Wendy Young, the president of Kids in Need in Defense, kind, who is on these issues tirelessly every day, especially with children and youth and one of the most dynamic organizations dedicated to the protection of young people anywhere. And after the first panel, we will pass to the second part of this program, an armchair discussion inspired by Dimitri Papadimitriou, MPI's co-founder, longtime president, and now present emeritus and distinguished transatlantic fellow, Dimitri has spent his career thinking about how you improve migration policy and migration governance. What makes for balanced, sensible, sustainable policy in different countries and different contexts? What sort of cooperation among countries is necessary to build effective governance mechanisms? And what do future labor market trends mean for migration management? Um, early in his career, he moved between research and public service, working on these issues until he and Kathleen launched MPI in 2001 to focus on researching and generating public debate around these issues. Dimitri will be joined by Antonio Vitorino, the General Director of the International Organization for Migration, another one of the great thinkers on these issues, a longtime friend of Dimitri and MPI, in an armchair conversation to discuss the future of migration policy. They'll be moderated by Megan Benton, MPI's Director of International Research, MPI and MPI Europe's Director of International Research, I should say. Um, these are issues that remain at the core of MPI's work, as well as the mission of the IOM. And with that, I want to thank all of you for joining us today, whether you're here in person or you're on the video stream um, and joining us to celebrate MPI's 20th anniversary in the best way that we know how to do it 
which is exploring the issues at the heart of human mobility today. And I want to invite my colleague, S.A. Worky, to introduce the first panel to start off. Thank you, S.A. Thank you, Andrew, for your opening remarks and also for inviting me to moderate this panel. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. It's so wonderful to have this intimate group to share in this conversation. You know, we all are here to celebrate MPI's 20th anniversary. And as I prepared for today, I started to reflect on what does that actually mean? And we each have our own relationship, our own connection to MPI. So our answers might be slightly different. But for me, it really comes down to three things. It comes down to ideas, relationships, and resilience. The free flow of ideas, the sharing of relationships from diverse backgrounds, and also resilience to find opportunity and solutions when at first glance, the reality that we're all in may seem like untenable challenges. So I welcome all of us to think about these three as possible themes for the conversation around humanitarian protection. You've heard uh, a little bit already about the panelists. I'll introduce them with a bit more detail. But first, let me introduce myself to all of you. My name is Esse Werke, and I'm a senior policy analyst here at MPI. I'm joined by video with the High Commissioner, as well as our in-person panelists, Ms. Wendy Young and Ms. Kathleen Newland. The High Commissioner, as many of you likely know, has been in the field for some time, beginning with UNHCR in 1988 and working in a lot of hotspots of refugee emergencies, including on the border of Thailand. He was also the Deputy Commissioner General and the Commissioner General for the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees. More recently, he was the Deputy Special Representative for the UN Secretary General in Afghanistan, and you'll hear reference to that experience as we begin our discussion. Now he is in his second term as the High Commissioner for the UN Refugee Agency. Thank you, sir, for joining us today. I'll turn now to introduce Ms. Wendy Young. She, of course, is the lead, the president of KIND and has been since 2009. And Andrew already mentioned what an incredible preeminent organization that is. Earlier in her career, she worked for UNHCR as well as Women's Refugee Commission, U.S. Conference for Catholic Bishops and a host of others. And she worked some, spent some time on the Hill working for the late Senator Ted Kennedy as the Chief Counsel on Immigration Policy for the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration, Border Security and Refugees. Thanks you for joining us. And now turning to Kathleen, everyone here I'm sure already knows Kathleen and Andrew has introduced her a bit, but I'll add just a few remarks. One is that she is a trusted advisor in the field. Beyond her work at MPI, she is a consultant for many international organizations and has been for several years, including the UN Secretary General's Office, UNHCR itself, the World Bank, and IOM. She's also a board member at KIND and has been a board member at several other leading organizations including the International Rescue Committee, USA for UNHCR, and the Women's Refugee Commission. 
She's also the author or editor of nine books. Please join me in welcoming our panel. So for today's panel, we will have three sets of questions that help us to reflect on the current state of affairs, as well as lessons learned from the past and the future that we hope to shape moving forward. We'll have some time for Q&A at the end and alternate between questions from the in-person audience, as well as questions from those of you at home or dialing in remotely from elsewhere. So, Hi Commissioner, if I may, I would like to begin with you. Your personal experience in and with Afghanistan is long and extensive, going back to the 90s, and including as Chief of Mission for UNHCR in almost two years as the UN Secretary General's Deputy Special Representative in Afghanistan in 2004. And of course, in all of your time at UNHCR, the challenge of protecting and assisting Afghan refugees has been a constant. Based on your experience, how does the current crisis there compare with what you've seen in Afghanistan in the past? And how is UNHCR able to operate under the Taliban? Thank you. Thank you very much. And let me, first of all, um, thank uh, MPI for this wonderful invitation. I'm so sorry I cannot be there with you. And uh, uh, wishing MPI, of course, a very happy birthday and uh, thanking MPI for all the support that it has given all of us practitioners, let's say, uh, in the field of migration and refugees. And a very special thanks to begin with to Kathleen, of course, with whom, uh, you know, friendship and professional contacts will go back so long. It's wonderful to be with the, on this panel with you and the others, Kathleen. And now on Afghanistan, I'll, you know, I'll, uh, let me just uh, share my views. First of all, uh, they are based, yes, on my experience on and off, of course, living there for a number of years, but also that was a long time ago by now, but also, of course, the, the enormous, as you said, um, almost symbiotic relationship between my agency, UNHCR, and Afghan refugees, more than 40 years of working uh, for them, for IDPs and other people uh, uh, in need in the country, but also based on recent experience. I was there in September after the takeover of the Taliban and spent a few days. Now, I, I have to say, I am still, um, I use my word prudently, I'm still um, a little bit uh, surprised, or maybe I shouldn't, by how much focus there is on the post-evacuation uh, uh, um, aspects of this. You know, many people were taken out during those fairly chaotic days in August. And I think it was very good that many people had that opportunity to leave since they were exposed. But that's it now, you know, evacuations may be necessary, may happen, but they will be very few and far apart. Now, the focus has to be on those who have stayed and presumably will stay in Afghanistan under very difficult conditions. And there, I would say two big things. One is there is a humanitarian crisis that is very urgent. 
we do have received lots of resources to address it. We're doing our best and we hope it's a race against time to help people before winter. Food, medicines, the basics. This is going to be run by humanitarian agencies. We have space given by the Taliban. Security is better than it has been in a long time for all the reasons that we can imagine. Uh, but we need to take that space. That, however, I think it needs to be very clear, will not resolve the main problem. That is, how will the state function? How will liquidity be ensured? How will services be able to uh, provide health and education and uh, 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 sanitation security to the people of Afghanistan without that international aid that kept it going for 20 years. And as you all know, important discussions are ongoing between a set of actors, including the United States government, and you know, to, to design something that now is fashionable to call humanitarian plus, where resources would be channeled, not through the Taliban, but with the consent of the Taliban through agencies to run those services, for example. Here, a warning, and this may be personal, this is good, but one, I think discussions are too slow. And two, this cannot be the long-term solution. And that is, for me, the real point of uh, reflection that we must have. How will we, international community, donor community, uh, agencies like mine, coexist with the Taliban? And I think that the only way to look at this going forward is that everybody has to make steps in each other's direction. So the Taliban have to deliver on the key issues that we know, uh, women at work, girls in schools, rights of minorities. But I think it is important that the international community make steps in their direction as well, in full appreciation that the Taliban sees themselves as the winners, as those that have earned the right through you know, suffering and loss of lives, that's their perception, to run the country. It's very important to to in, 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 in using what I call smart conditionality to, to take that into account. A final point perhaps germane to my organization on displacement. There is huge internal displacement. Three and a half million just displaced by conflict plus many others displaced by other reasons. It has not been expanding despite some reports. Displacement is actually a little less than it was on the 15th of August, because we estimate that at least 200,000 people have returned home because security is better. And the Taliban are keen to cooperate on those solutions for displaced people. There are refugees trying to get out of the countries, especially minorities and a few others, mixed with more regular and perhaps more intense economic migration movements. It's a very complex situation. It's not dramatic yet, although figures are growing, but it will become dramatic if the country implodes. Hence the urgency of finding a solution, as, uh, as, I, have, uh, uh, as I have mentioned, a solution uh, that prevents, in a way, this, uh, this uh, from happening. Whilst, of course, keeping pressure on the neighboring countries to keep borders open, to receive those that flee for reasons, you know, more, more, uh, more uh, typical protection reasons, rights, and otherwise. So a very complex situation cannot be reduced to 
as often in the media, bad Taliban, everybody's suffering, everybody needs to get out of there. That's not the way to look at it, but in a more complex situation that needs to be looked at in the context of this very new, very unusual uh, 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 political setting with the Taliban in charge, Taliban that are not going to go away anytime soon and with whom, therefore, eventually, we will have to find a way to coexist and cooperate. Thank you so much, High Commissioner. Those are very sobering and yet optimistic and hopeful thoughts. And the sooner that we are able to accept the current state and invest in resources to help the people still in Afghanistan, the better off they will be. There will be. Thank you for that. I'll turn now to fill a question on Afghanistan, uh, Wendy, but about children from Afghanistan who are now in the US. So I know that KIND has issued guidelines for the protection of unaccompanied children arriving from Afghanistan to the US. And based on your extensive experience with children alone at the border, as well as elsewhere in, in the world, what are the priorities that you've identified for U.S. policy and practice? Sure. First, let me also join in saying happy anniversary to MPI, which has been an invaluable partner in our work for the past 20 years uh, as a source of sound policy recommendations and data in a field that is very often too characterized by misinformation and myth. And I want to say a personal thanks to Dimitri and Kathleen, who have not only been colleagues, but mentors and friends to me throughout my own career. So hard to believe it's been 20 years, <laughs> but very happy to be here celebrating and also to be on this, uh, this prestigious panel with the High Commissioner. Uh, so back to Afghanistan and back to the evacuation. Um, among the tens of thousands of individuals who were evacuated from Afghanistan in August were approximately 1,300 unaccompanied children. These were children who were either separated from their parents in the chaos that unfolded at the airport in Afghanistan, parents sent to one country, the child sent to another, or the children were sent out and the parents remain in Afghanistan. Um, about 300 of these 1,300 children remain in federal custody in the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and about 1,000 have been released to non-parental sponsors here in the United States under a process that normally occurs for unaccompanied children regardless of their nationality. And I, as an aside, KIND has been providing services to some of these children through our New York office. The evacuation from Afghanistan did present some very unique challenges, obviously, but I would say that there are certain core principles of child protection um, that really should carry forward regardless of, of the circumstances of the children's departure from Afghanistan. First, the first line of defense for unaccompanied children really should be in the vast majority of cases family unity. So we need to look at mechanisms, although there are really no clear mechanisms under international or, or national laws, to bring these families back together as expeditiously as possible. That can be done either, obviously, the parent being brought to the United States to reunify with the child, or if it's in the best interest of the child, the child being uh, transferred to, to the third country and reunified with the parent there. This will require a great deal of international and bilateral cooperation, as well as the support of UN agencies such as UNHCR and UNICEF, uh, civil society and governments themselves. Um, second, this process should be led by those that are expert in child protection and child welfare. Um, and children must be provided and their family members with appropriate, culturally competent 
mental health and other supports throughout the process because these are kids who've obviously experienced the trauma of having to depart their country under extremely dangerous and chaotic circumstances and are also now experiencing the trauma of being separated from their parents. This is a, something that we know well in this country, unfortunately, after the experience of the last administration and the zero tolerance policy, albeit very different circumstances that have brought these kids to be separated from their parents. Um, finally, these children need to be helped through the US immigration system. Uh, evacuation is not the end of their journey. They were granted uh, parole, humanitarian parole for a two year period upon re uh, arrival. I will say that a handful of the children who first arrived strangely were issued a notice to appear in immigration court and placed into deportation proceedings, which seemed like an, uh, an odd outcome given we had flown them halfway across the world to, to provide them protection, uh, straightening that out. Um, but th these kids really do need legal counsel to help them through this, both family reunification process as well as the immigration system so that we can bring them to some kind of stable um, uh, status, permanent status in the United States so that they can get on with their lives. And if there's one thing I know about working with children, stability that supports their well-being, that supports their safety, that supports their ability to look forward is probably the most essential thing that any child who's been displaced needs. Thank you very much. I'm not sure if my mic is on. Yeah, I think it's coming on now. Can you hear me okay? No. Uh, no? Folks in the back can't hear me? How about now? Testing one, two? No, I might need some help. Oh, thank you. Great. So I was just, <laughs> did you see it? Doubled up on me there. <laughs> I need to practice more patience. I think that's what it's telling me. All right, I'll stick with the handheld. So Wendy, you know, your, your comments um, remind me of two things. One, that we need to keep humanity at the center of our immigration policies, especially when it comes to children. And two, the need to have an interdisciplinary approach so that we're welcoming a child welfare perspective, we're looking at legal services, and we're thinking about their longer term well-being. So I really appreciate that you're inviting all of us to keep that in the front of our minds as we have this conversation. So Kathleen, building all that on that, I'll turn to you now. Um, to ask you to kind of reflect back on the current situation that we're in and what we've learned from the past. Many people have compared the last stages of the withdrawal from Afghanistan with the fall of Saigon in 1975. What parallels do you see beyond the chaotic seats that we all saw on the news or in person at, at the airports in Afghanistan and Kabul? Will the experiences of the two groups of refugees arriving in the United States be similar or different? What are your thoughts on this? Thank you so much, Essay. Uh, and let, let me add my own parentheses to say what a pleasure it is uh, to be on this panel, to be with all of you to celebrate MPI's 20th, but particularly to be on this panel with uh, Wendy and Filippo. Uh, Sorry, Hi, Commissioner. Um, <laughs> we go back about 30 years, I think, and uh, with Wendy nearly as long. So there's a lot of, there's a, there are many years of combined wisdom uh, here before you, uh, at least for those two. And um, it's, it's a great pleasure to be with them. Um, 
Vietnam and Afghanistan, there have been a lot of analogies made. The, the two conflicts, of course, are, are separated by decades, by a vast continent. But I think there are parallels uh, that will have consequences for the way refugees from both countries have been received in the United States. <clears throat> I think there are a lot of parallels, but let me mention just three of them. The first, and I think the most important, is that Americans understand why people are fleeing. Both that was true in Vietnam, it's true in Afghanistan. The wars have been on our the wars have been on our television screens for years, in the case of Afghanistan, for decades. Uh, and thousands of Americans have direct experience in those countries in as uh, in the military, as government officials, NGOs, contractors, reporters, and so on and so forth. The parallels um, between the Vietnamese refugee experience and uh, those coming to Afghanistan currently, to say, first of all, that Americans understand why people are coming to this country in both cases. Um, and thousands of Americans have had direct experience, first in Vietnam, now in Afghanistan. You know, it's been harder to explain to Americans in recent years why people are coming here from Burundi, from Bhutan, from Congo, even though there are very good reasons, but Americans are less familiar with those geographies. Not so in Vietnam and Afghanistan. It also helps to have a common enemy, a perceived common enemy, which uh, has been true in both cases. Parallel is that both Vietnamese and Afghans <clears throat> arrived are arriving as parolees, not formally as refugees. And this has implications for the programs available to assist them in settling in this country. Uh, the programs to process and welcome them have been largely improvised at least in these early stages <clears throat> and in a hurry. Uh, the Refugee Act, of course, was not passed until 1980, so the first arrivals from Vietnam didn't have the benefit of that system. And Afghans are mostly arriving as parolees who don't have access to refugee benefits. And also, their arrival as parolees means that UNHCR doesn't have much parole to play in their settlement. Uh, there just simply is no legal basis for UNHCR's involvement, which, of course, leaves out a great deal of expertise. There's also no clear path to legal permanent residence and citizenship for parolees. That too has to be improvised. I'm sure it will be, but it's not uh, straightforward. A third parallel, the last one I'll mention, is the role that private citizens and companies take on to welcome these refugees. In Vietnam, congregations, community groups, voluntary organizations, uh, found housing for refugees. Our dear colleague Doris Meisner had a family of five living with her for, uh, for a few months uh, at that time. And uh, many, many Americans opened their homes and their hearts to Vietnamese. We're seeing uh, the same kind of um, outpouring of volunteerism uh, for Afghans. Of course, the Department of Homeland Security is organizing efforts across the government through uh, uh, 
Operation Allies Welcome. And they're, but they're also working uh, intensively with uh, nonprofits and other volunteers and private companies. A nonprofit Welcome US, which was set up only on September 14th, has over 200 partner organizations working with it and has raised millions of dollars uh, and has been connecting Afghan arrivals with US sponsors. Private companies are working with Welcome US on transportation, on housing, on employment, uh, on legal services, and on provision of household necessities. Will the experiences of these two groups be similar? I think the long arc will be one of success, successful integration for most. It's very hard on the first generation, uh, which suffers from disorientation as adults and usually dramatic loss of role and status. But they are equipped with a fierce determination that their children will succeed and prosper. And that is what I would expect. Thank you very much, Kathleen. Um, there are some differences, but there is also the hope for successful integration for both groups. And apologies to all of you in the virtual audience. We, we've received the message. We know that sound has been a challenge. And so we'll do our best moving forward to hold the mics closer to our mouths and also to speak into the top of the mics. And hopefully that will make a difference. Uh, if not, please let us know and we'll continue to troubleshoot. Switching gears a little bit now, uh, moving away from Afghanistan and, and to the US, looking at policy differences between the two recent, the current administration and the previous administration. I will ask a question, uh, similar questions to both the High Commissioner and to Wendy about coping with the swings in US policy. So High Commissioner, in, in the US, we've set a target now for 125,000 refugees to be resettled as the maximum. Prior to that, it was 18,000, the historical low for the presidential determination. Similarly, Wendy, in the unaccompanied children context, the Department of Homeland Security referred uh, just over 15,000 children in FY20. Now, in this federal fiscal year, estimates say well above 123,000. So if High Commissioner, you could begin by answering how these wide policy shifts uh, affect your work and how you cope with it. And then Wendy, if you pick up from there and share your perspective to the same question. High Commissioner. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, I should say that this particular swing that you have just mentioned, the increase of the US resettlement quota, at least uh, the decision is to bring it back to 125,000 a year is a very welcome swing. No matter how much swings can be difficult to manage, this one is particular much better than the previous swing, which was to go in the opposite direction. I say this and maybe I state the obvious and everybody knows, but because I do believe that resettlement, refugee resettlement, which is a small solution numerically, you know, we have what, 26, 27 million refugees around the world, 
to resettle 125,000, even with all the other countries, we won't get maybe to 200,000 a year, if we're lucky next year or the following year. It's still a small fraction, but it is powerful. It is important for the people that are resettled. It is a great sign, signal, concrete signal of responsibility sharing for host countries. So very welcome this. Now, on the very practical level, a decision like this, a swing like this, going up and down and up again, is of course challenging from the management point of view, because in order for us to meet, to cooperate with the US government in identifying and processing all these tens of thousands of refugees, we will have to reconstitute an infrastructure that we had to dismantle during the previous administration because simply there were not enough people to resettle. And that one was not, it was not affordable anymore to have that big infrastructure. But this is a very practical point, but important because it affects NGOs even more than it does UNHCR. It requires resources, et cetera, et cetera. The, uh, I think that another important lesson or impact or lesson anyway, is that we live in a world, and here I make a much more general point, we live in a world in which even on the most um, taken for granted humanitarian programs like US refugee resettlement, a symbol of US refugee policies over the past 30 years, even around these, uh, even, even these alliances, these, these supporting uh, uh, coalition can collapse after one election. So it's very fragile. We cannot take for granted any of these established cooperation in the humanitarian and refugee field. And this is, you know, if you look at what's happened again during the Trump administration to other organizations, UNFPA, for example, uh, uh, in matters of sexual and reproductive health. Uh, and, you know, we can, we can find many other examples the changes were sudden, and when it comes to, to financial support, we didn't suffer any decrease, but when it comes to financial support, UNRWA, for example, my previous uh, organization, the Palestinian Refugee Agency, these swings can be pretty devastating, even if then they go upwards again, because uh, reconstituting that type of infrastructure may be uh, very, uh, very difficult. And my final point is even broader. And my final point is that uh, um, swings in the field of refugee protection, which is the theme of this panel, are becoming more and more frequent, uh, worrying, and damaging. Um, we have seen very well-established state partners of UNHCR change dramatically their asylum policies or signaling the willingness to change. And uh, so far, I think it has been fairly contained, limited, sometimes time limited, but it is becoming frequent. We're engaged in difficult discussions. We've been engaged with difficult, in difficult discussion with Australia for many years on this theme, but we are also now engage in difficult discussions with Denmark, with the UK, 
in other European countries that have been over the decades very staunch supporters of refugee policies and continue to be supporters in different ways. My point here is volatility around these issues is increasing at a time when the protection challenges because of conflict, because of, uh, uh, um, of a general deterioration of the humanitarian space around the world, all of this is becoming worse and we would need those alliances and those types of support more than ever. So a good lesson learned. I, I'll, I'll reflect a bit in, in the next question about some of these issues, but here I want to flag that broader volatility, which is quite of concern, quite concerning to all of us. Thank you, High Commissioner. And Wendy, what would you add to that? Well, first to say, I don't think that we've probably seen such wild shifts in asylum and border policies than we have in the past five years. That really, as the High Commissioner said so eloquently, I think really calls into question our international or domestic uh, responsibilities to refugee protection, as well as our moral standing in, in the global community who are many countries, of course, are facing many more uh, refugees and asylum seekers than the US is. Um, starting with the glass half full, I will say under the current administration, we have seen some improvements, the restoration or the move towards restoring the refugee resettlement system being a notable example as the high commissioner outlined. Included in that, of course, is the Central American Miners Program through which we are allowing unaccompanied children to apply for refugee resettlement or parole from their home country and to be relocated to the United States uh, when they uh, merit protection. Um, we've also seen a partial lifting of some of the border restrictions on unaccompanied children, uh, at least for children who present in between ports of entry, although albeit not yet at, at ports of entry. But having said that, we're also seeing a adherence to policies that are grounded more in the, the idea of deterrence, preventing or, or um, sending signals to people in home don't bother coming, you will not be welcome here, as opposed to uh, moving towards humane and orderly border processing. So we still see a uh, uh, the Title 42 public health border closure, closure remains in place. The so-called migrant protection protocols policy remains in place, although uh, currently winding its way through the courts. Um, we saw the incredibly harsh treatment in uh, expedited deportations of Haitian asylum seekers in Del Rio, Texas. All of these are policies that, again, reflect more of a deterrence approach than they do with the direction that we really hope to head under the leadership of this administration, which is creating policies that are grounded in humane and orderly processing of individuals who come to the United States in search of protection. Of course, among individuals who seek protection, unaccompanied children are perhaps the most vulnerable. Um, so we are working towards um, both working collaboratively with the current administration, but also frankly uh, pointing out to them that they are uh, heading more in the direction of deterrence um, to really see if we can reach a point where we restore stability to our asylum system. And as I think the high commissioner pointed out, also a certain sense of predictability um, that these policies won't just keep changing administration after administration, which over the long term, I think, has a very corrosive effect on our international reputation and, of course, tragically, on the lives of people who do desperately need education. Thank you very much.
So it's not only children who need stability, it's also the service infrastructure that needs stability from administration to administration in order to function at its peak. We wanna turn in just a few moments to questions from the in-person audience as well as the virtual audience. And those of you who are virtual, we ask you to enter your questions via chat on Zoom or to tweet them at Migration Policy. As we close up the uh, moderated panel portion, uh, we wanna take a look ahead into the future. So, hi, Commissioner. As you know only all too well, the international refugee regime for the protection and assistance of refugees and others who fall under your mandate is under unprecedented strain, as you've discussed and we all understand. New refugee-producing crises keep breaking out, including in, in my home country of Ethiopia. While long-lasting refugee situations also persist, such as in Syria or Myanmar, do you see the system evolving in any positive ways? We're looking for a little bit of hope here. Mm -hmm. Uh, and how in the world that we live in today do you continue to press for solutions in the face of all of this? Wow, that's a big question for three minutes, but I'll do my best. First of all, uh, let me, um, let me um, stress maybe first the negative and then go to the more hopeful. Um, these are difficult times. This is an understatement, the euphemism of the evening. Um, we've, we've, counted, uh, we've counted in UNHCR alone 33 emergency responses this year. We had to respond in emergency mode to 33 different situations. I think this is a record and the year is not even finished, unfortunately. So it's very bad from that point of view. But then on the more protection angle, it's the whole construction of asylum that is under unprecedented pressure. Of course, you have some of the usual restrictions, you know, countries saying, no, people cannot come, they have to stay uh, outside. I mean, this we've seen for a long time, but it's becoming more frequent. What is more worrying is the incredible politicization of asylum, politicization of migration in general and of asylum in particular. I don't need to say much. It's enough to, at least here in Europe, you switch on the news and you hear for half an hour the news talking about what's happening at the border between Belarus and Poland. And then you have like a digest of all the politicization, certainly on the Belarus side, but also on the EU side to a certain extent. So that's, that's dangerous because that politicization has generated a context in which even what I would call governments that are moderate on the migration front, on the refugee front, have become shy in terms of migration and refugee policies for fear of losing elections. And I think in your own country, you know something about that. I'm talking not about Ethiopia, sorry. I'm talking about the US in this particular case. Um, and of course, this uh, politicization and the, all the sphere of fear that is around it has created a context in which solutions have become very difficult because all this negative rhetoric is, is not conducive to solutions in spite of what it says, right? It doesn't offer space for the practical solutions that are possible. It has exposed the vulnerability 
of rich countries in particular to the migration issues. And this is what exactly is happening in Europe now. Europe is exposed to pressures from reckless neighbors because it has shown that this is, it is vulnerable even to 2000 people stranded at the border. And this is really counterproductive in so many ways. And you know, third of many other factors, it sends a terrible signals to the biggest host countries of the 84, or let's stick to refugees only, 26, 27 million refugees. We all know 90% are in poor countries or in middle-income countries. But the signal that these fears send to those countries are terrible. And before I close, on the more positive side, first of all, we do have, and we have had now for three years, a global compact on refugees. And by the way, a global compact on migration. And the two are very complementary in so many ways, especially in a world of very mixed flows. And I think those compacts are something go worth going back to. They are not new conventions that we all know. They are toolboxes. They are models of response that include a lot of new and interesting types of responses. The way we, for example, in UNHCR have been able to work with the World Bank in the past five years and mobilize billions, I'm not exaggerating, billions in bilateral development aid for states hosting large numbers of refugees, both poor countries and middle-income countries is without precedent. And if properly handled by all, could become a game changer if it is replicated by other donors as well. Because it is a new way, much more sustainable way to respond to, uh, to, to refugee crisis. And if applied to IDP crisis as well, if applied to repatriation could really become a formidable game changer. And my final point, and you know, this is all linked. This is one example of what the, the refugee compact includes that we're developing. There's many other areas that have been quite positive in the last uh, few years. And my final point is, is a really broad and almost moral point. I think, uh, and Kathleen, I, I couldn't hear everything, but I think I heard what she said. You know, the, the solidarity that you have witnessed in the US uh, in respect of Afghans is formidable. And, and we see it over and over again. Solidarity is far from dead. This year, we are recording 3 million individual donors to UNHCR. This is the first time that we have reached this level. And I keep telling governments, these are your taxpayers, the ones you're so worried about when elections come and you have to tell them that you'll build a wall as opposed to have a good refugee law. But many of your voters have solidarity, understand that it is important to be with the people in distress, and they also have a voice that needs to be listened to. So they, my little hopeful contribution is on this last point. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. We needed that hope. And it's clear that people are putting their money where their mouth is through the donations and what once was a source of tension between refugee camps and host communities with the refugee compact is actually an opportunity now with added resources so that's very exciting to hear about turning to you wendy for the last nine years we've seen an overall upward trend of the number of unaccompanied children with peaks in fy 14 16 and 19 
And then of course the historical estimated high that we're currently or in the last federal fiscal year we saw. Kind's core mission has demonstrated that having legal counsel in immigration and asylum proceeding makes a life-changing difference, an enormous difference. And so your organization has done a remarkable amount to fill that gap. But now in the face of this large increase, is legal representation enough? Are there other border, broader reforms that the U.S. should make in order to protect the rights of these vulnerable children? Thank you. Well, first to provide some context, when the laws were first drafted that ultimately passed is the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act and partly through the Homeland Security Act of 2003 that shaped the system that's currently in place to protect unaccompanied children. The year that we started drafting that legislation, the total number of unaccompanied child arrivals was 270. We're now getting that number in one day and some days two or three times that number. So I don't think we should be surprised that the system needs a, a significant overhaul. Not to throw out the core kind of center essence of that law, which is that children are different and more vulnerable in the system. And therefore the system has to stretch to accommodate their needs, not the other way around. But certainly we need to rebuild a system that can flex with the kind of numbers that we're seeing this year, which as you said, are we reached a whole all time high in the fiscal year and certainly the calendar year. So what do I mean by that? Well, what we're looking at at KIND is really looking at the entire system from A to Z and back to A again. And what I mean by that is um, starting in home countries, um, the High Commissioner referenced development aid into to countries that are host refugees. We also need to promote development in countries that are sourcing refugees, uh, particularly looking at Guatemala, El Salvador, and uh, Honduras, so-called uh, Northern Triangle countries of Central America. And really uh, specifically and very strategically provide foreign assistance that addresses the causes of migration from the region. A community-based approach, a youth-based approach, so that people really have true alternatives to remain in their home country, and particularly children, because obviously a child fleeing, leaving their family, leaving their community, crossing international borders, this is not, uh, as an immediate red flag that something is going wrong in that child's life and protection. Second is building out regional protection regimes, uh, particularly in Mexico, but across the region, so that uh, individuals seeking asylum have alternatives to presenting themselves at the U.S. border. Third is border processing itself. Over and over again, what we've seen is images of children and families backed up at U.S. ports of entry, sleeping on the floor, uh, uh, insufficient, really grossly insufficient provision of just basic needs to those individuals as their process. We need to invest in that processing so that it can be done in both a humane and orderly way. And that includes deploying child welfare professionals to the border to really address the needs of children and their families rather than relying on border patrol agents who are, frankly, law enforcement officers. This is not what they've signed up to do. Um, next is to look at the system that we um, have in place to care for children. Um, children are transferred to the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Sometimes they remain there for months, uh, awaiting processing to family that can more appropriately care for them. We need to process kids more quickly, but make sure that they're released to appropriate sponsors. And then, most importantly, we need to provide wraparound services, including the provision of legal counsel to every single child who's facing deportation proceedings. I've been in immigration courts. I've seen toddlers facing immigration judges 
standing there alone with no lawyer by their side while a trained and experienced immigration lawyer from the Department of Homeland Security is arguing for that child's removal. It's absurd. We need to address that. We also need to provide appropriate social services. And for those children who are granted um, some form of relief and the ability to remain in the United States, we need to help them integrate into their communities and pursue U.S. citizenship if they so choose. And finally, for those children who are denied relief, help them get back home safely and provide them with support services so that they can reintegrate into their families and hopefully remain home sustainably. So KIND is launching a major initiative trying to think outside the box and see if we can restore some sanity to the system that, frankly, right now is broken. Thank you. And you know, you said sanity. As you were speaking, I was thinking common sense. These approaches that you're mentioning, when you think of children, it's really common sense. So Kathleen, we'll turn to you for the final forward-looking question. You've been working on these issues for 40 years. Where do you see the frontiers in humanitarian response, uh, for better or for worse? Well, there's certainly plenty of both. <laughs> um, and uh, Filippo has uh, has very eloquently described one of one of the frontiers, I think, which is the weaponization of refugees, <clears throat> displaced people, and other migrants, both in internal and domestic politics. So I will uh, leave that with what you've already learned. Um, another uh, thing I think we're seeing now is the blurring of categories between migrants and refugees as the causes of displacement multiply and become more complex. Uh, this toxic mix of poor governance, state capture by criminal elements, poverty, armed conflict, crime, hopelessness. You know, this is many of uh, uh, these things can't be disentangled. The leading edge of this uh, phenomenon is brought into sharp focus by climate change. <clears throat> climate displacement as a result of climate change is a reality, but the people who are affected don't fall into conventional refugee categories. So it is, um, uh, it's difficult, it's confusing to figure out what channels should be used and can be used to, um, to protect and assist them. The uh, recently concluded COP26 uh, discussion about loss and damage as a result of climate change were not very encouraging uh, as um, leading the way forward. On a more positive note, um, there is a lot of innovation in the field, in the humanitarian field uh, currently. Uh, in uh, our own current experience with Afghans, we're seeing a surge of interest in private sponsorship for refugees. And uh, this is something that's well established in Canada, but has never really been um, put into practice here. But the State Department now has a, a hub which is uh, encouraging sponsorship circles for Afghan refugees and uh, is, has set out uh, training for would-be sponsors, is vetting and certifying sponsors and uh, making sure that they have the wherewithal to fulfill their, uh, the obligations that they're willingly taking on. 
Um, there are other kinds of innovations like using non-unconventional non pathways for refugees to resettle in another country, opening educational pathways, opening labor markets to refugees in ways that they have not been able to access before. And I think that shows great promise. Certainly one of the biggest developments is in regional cooperation. And most, uh, most strikingly in South America in the response to the outpouring of people from Venezuela, uh, we've seen countries, Colombia in the lead, offering people uh, temporary uh, protected status, temporary legal status, without having to go through a process of determining, are you a refugee or are you a migrant or you know what benefits do you have? And this is uh, being, uh, there are elements of this being put in place throughout the region. And that's tremendously um, encouraging, particularly as we see this blurring of, of categories. Um, I, I hope that we will indeed, as Filippo suggested, seeing more use made of the toolbox uh, that was laid out in the Refugee Compact and the Global Compact on Migration, uh, because the, the regional cooperation that we're seeing has demonstrated its value, not only in South America and the Horn of Africa under the EGAD, uh, some of that. And uh, I think that if I can try to end on a positive note, is one of the for better elements of the frontiers of humanitarian uh, policy and practice. Thank you. It's certainly a mix. And what is that old adage? A necessity is the mother of an ingenuity or an innovation <laughs> yeah, or invention. Yeah, one of those I words. Okay, so um, please join me in, in thanking our panel and then we'll turn to Q&A. A question uh, from the online audience. And if anyone here has a question, if you would raise your hand, and then Miss Maria Mora will come to you with the mic so that you can ask your question. This question from the virtual audience, while we're waiting for an in-person question, is directed to the High Commissioner. The question reads, considering that states are more or less allergic these days in relation to international state obligations that arise from treaties, are soft laws and agreements, such as the Global Compact for Migration, the more advisable strategy moving forward? Should I answer? Yes, please. Yeah, well, <laughs> I hope that this allergy is not so that pervasive. There's still a fair amount of respect for treaties that that uh, that uh, that occurs. Uh, but yes, uh, true. Um, we live we live in a, at a time when commitments such as those commitments made to the Refugee Convention seventy years ago are more difficult to 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 to, to witness. Um, but let me, you know, back, the question is about the compact. And by the way, um, can we just remember that there are two compacts? <laughs> just to go back to what Kathleen said about refugees and migrants, there's one on refugees and there's one on safe and orderly migration. So there are two. 
But I think that both compacts, although they're quite different, the both compacts are not are precisely not treaties, are not conventions to be signed. I, I use this word, maybe it's a bit minimalist, but I think it describes correctly the toolboxes. They offer a very wide range of solutions to states um, on the key issues regarding refugee protection and solutions and regarding safe and orderly migration. And this is very important. And so states can pick and choose, surely, but they're meant to be as practical as possible in order for states to make use of those tools. And not only states, they're addressing civil society, they're addressing the private sector, they're addressing academia, they're addressing a, a very wide range of actors. And uh, we have seen an uptake of solutions drawn from the compact uh, by a number of actors, which is quite encouraging. Just to conclude by saying that I, I don't mean to sound so pragmatic that I may come across as unprincipled. Of course, the, the compact, the refugee compact in particular, is founded on all the treaties and the conventions. So it has a very solid background or foundation of principles. But like I said, it's a practical tool that given these times, we thought three years ago would be a good offer for states to take up. Thank you so much. And you have the final word on that for now. We are out of time for this panel. Apologies. I know that we may have had a question or two from the in-person audience, but we encourage you to mix and mingle this evening after our second panel and ask your questions then. Please join me again in a warm round of applause for our panel. Thank you to the High Commissioner. Thank you to Wendy Young. And thank you especially to Kathleen Newland for her 20 years of service to Migration Policy Institute. Um, if you stay in your seat, we will have a message right now from the founding board chair of the Migration Policy Institute, Mary McClymouth, and then we're gonna proceed with our armchair conversation.